0: And the rest of you, open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, chapter 4. This morning we're looking at Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. That's on page 176 in a pew Bible. uh, The fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, chapter 4, page 176. We continue our study through Deuteronomy, and this morning we come to these verses, verses 32 to 40. You know, I was so happy when they um, got that cheesecake factory at South Shore Plaza. I I dig the cheesecake factory. I, uh, you know, I love how big the, it's a little pricey, but I like how big the portions are, and I like, you know, uh, it's good food. I even like the decor. I'm not sure what that is. It's like contemporary Inca, you know, Florida or something. It's it's uh, some weird kind of vibe, but I, I'm into that too. You know, the the one thing I don't like at the Cheesecake Factory, though, is just the size of the menu. I mean, there are so many. I don't know if you've ever gotten a Cheesecake Factory menu. It's like pages. And, page, and even if you want to just get cheesecake, it's so many options. You know, that menu should really come with like a search app uh, to just... <laughs> sift through it and figure out what you want. But I was thinking that that's sort of just indicative of the times in which we live. Uh, This is what it's like living in uh, a culture that you might say is under the conditions of advanced capitalism. Uh, We we just live in a, a society that has produced a lot of goods. There are just a lot of options. And so part of what it means to live in our society is that we're faced with So many choices in every area. I mean, we're just drowning in choices. Almost too many choices sometimes that we feel debilitated by all the choices. You know, you can't just go to the store and buy deodorant. It's like you you go and it's like, okay, what do I want? You know, there's this whole row with all these different. You know, do I want spray? Do I want roll-on? Do I want the powder? Do I want the clear stuff? You know, you know, which one do I smell like? And you know, it's like, and all these choices just figure out what to you know smear on your armpit. It's like. Really? There's so many choices of what to watch on TV, so many types of music, so many different jams to spread on your bread and so much bread to choose from. Uh, and, and, you know, when we live in this kind of sort of culture where, where there is such an amazing array of choices and opportunities before us and we're the ones making the choices, it, it just kind of quietly does something to your perception of reality. I, I think it mentally conditions us, without even knowing it. To see life as choices and me as chooser and me as, as consumer. And, and then what can happen is, if we're not careful, is that that just kind of bleeds into the way we view the bigger things in life. You know, truth and, and right and wrong and what's, what's real and what isn't real. You know, the, the mall, so to speak, if you want to put it this way, kind of dribbles into our metaphysics. And we start thinking about what is and maybe, maybe reality really is just what I want it to be. You know, different beliefs, different lifestyles, different rights and wrongs, different religions, different spiritualities. And we begin to see that as if it's just a huge buffet, and I'm the chooser deciding for myself what works for me. I mean, isn't that really what postmodernism is? Isn't that the postmodern uh, posture toward reality? But what if, let me just pretend, what if... There actually was one and only one God. You like, oh, know, I do no no, There's lots of religions. Yeah, I know there's lots of religions. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, what if there's one and only one God? And what if there really is only one choice in religion, a true choice, which is to either follow that God or not? You know, what, what would that mean? How would that how would that fit and how would that work? Today we come to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40, and here this is what Moses is driving home for us, that there is God and besides him there is no other. Here in Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 to 40, we have not just the sort of the end of chapter 4, but really the end of the first section of the book of Deuteronomy. So if this is your first Sunday here, if you haven't been studying Deuteronomy with us, just a quick reminder, Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gave to the Israelites after they'd come out of Egypt, after they got the Ten Commandments, and as they were on the verge of going into the get the Promised Land, Moses gave them all these talks. And a lot of Deuteronomy, the bulk of it is about, hey, you're God's people, this is how you need to live as God's people. And so there's going to be a lot of commandments, a lot of teachings about the people of God. Um, <clears throat> but before you get to that, which starts next Sunday in chapter 5, chapter 4 Really, it's sort of the historical review of events leading up to this moment. So we call chapters 1 through 4 the historic prologue of Deuteronomy. It's where Moses kind of walked Israel down memory lane to say, before we go in the promised land, before I give you these commandments, let's just remind you what God's done for you. Let's remind you of how good God has been. And, and so we come here to chapter four, uh, 4, verse 32 to 40, and it's kind of the summary of all that. This, this thing we've been studying for the last several months, this historic review, comes to a, a kind of a rhetorical climax at the very end of this sermon that Moses is giving. And so he says in verse 32, of chapter 4, let me just read the text. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of a fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard the words from out of the fire. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for an inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and with your children after you that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all Time. So here's Moses, as I said, summarizing the historical review and really driving home this idea that that God is the true God and and I would say you know there's a lot we could talk about in this passage, probably more than we have time to unpack today. But I just want to highlight three sort of of what I think of the major themes that we find in this passage. Three things that Moses wants to drive home. And the first one is this. Here's the first one. He he wants to remind the Israelites that they have experienced something completely unique in all of human history. That, that in God rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt, something very unprecedented has taken place. And so if you look back at the text, he says in verse 32, Ask now about the former times long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Hey, Israel, let's just do a quick review of all human history since the beginning in all the world. And, and here's the question. Has anything so great as this ever happened, or has anything like it ever been heard of? You guys have been taken out of Egypt. You've been rescued. God's done so much. Is this this how God normally works? Has this taken place before? And the answer, of course, is no. Something amazing has taken place in Israel's history. For instance, verse 33. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Now, what's that all about? What's a God speaking out of fire? Well, that's a, a reference back to the time when God came down on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke and spoke the Ten Commandments to the people. In fact, let's just go back and read it so you can read the original instance. just takes a minute. Put a bookmark here. Go back to the book of Exodus chapter 19, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. And let's just read that story real quick of the day when God spoke to Israel out of the fire. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. What a terrifying event to be standing at this mountain where it just gets louder and louder and fire and smoke, and the place is trembling, and everyone is shaking. And then, of course, God comes down, and they don't see him, but his voice comes forth. And in chapter 20 of Exodus, you have the Ten Commandments. God speaks the Ten Commandments. And then look how the people immediately respond. Chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 18. Right after the Ten Commandments are delivered, it says, when the people, verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So now going back to Deuteronomy 4, that's what Moses is talking about in verse 33, where he says, has any people ever heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Don't you guys remember? God himself came down on a mountain you know, in, in this fiery holocaust this appearance of God in fire and smoke. And remember that you guys were terrified? You didn't even want to talk to him? You're just like, hey, go ahead, Moses, you talk to him. You know, it, God came down, and the people were scared, not just because of God's power, not just because of fire, but ultimately because of God's holiness that was there. He's a holy God. And whenever sinful people come into the presence of a holy God, the typical response is terror and dread. Because we recognize at that moment that we've, We've, we've not obeyed God and that we're under his judgment. And so, so Moses says, remember, Israel, you guys saw God on the mountain. Not only that, going back to Deuteronomy 4, God rescued you out of Egypt. Again, look at verse 34. Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? By testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt. Before your very eyes, you know. So hey, let's go back before Mount Sinai. Remember when God took you out of Egypt? That was crazy. <laughs> That's what I imagine Moses saying. Hey, that was unbelievable. He look at all he did for you. Like wow, he he did miracles. He did plagues on Egypt. remember he, Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood? Remember he parted the Red Sea? All these amazing things happened. Has this ever happened to any nation? Again, check your history books. What nation on planet Earth was ever founded by God miraculously rescuing them out of slavery through miracles and supernaturally planting them in a new place? No other nation has that story. It's completely unprecedented. Israel's existence under the old covenant was a complete miracle from God where he just made a nation. He pulled them out, cleared the way, pushed the people out, and stuck them in the land. It's amazing. And, And... and Moses is saying, "Guys, you ever anything like this? No, look what God has done for you. It's an incredible thing, and God has acted in history it's one of the things I'm just amazed about in the Bible is that it comes to us as an account of God's actions in history. It's not like other religious books It's not like uh you know sayings of of Confucius or it's not like uh books on spirituality, you know they're just kind of teachings about how to live. It's not even like, you know, the Quran, where Muhammad gives a a series of prophecies that he has. I mean, the Quran is just a list of these, uh, you know, these shurahs, these prophecies where Muhammad would get a word, supposedly, and then write it down and say this is what God says. It's not like that, though. I mean, the Bible is fundamentally the story of God's public actions in history for everybody to see. You know, these are events that took place in the mid-1400s B.C., in a specific time and place with specific people. And God did it. And, and, you know, we struggle with that sometimes. We're like, really? I mean, the Red Sea, how could the Red Sea part? I mean, water doesn't stand up in a liquid form. It, it flows. I mean, this is basic physics. And how could water turn into blood in the Nile River? I mean, I just have a hard time buying these things. They 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 you know they would break all the laws of physics. And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> That's the point. You know, Moses is saying nothing like this has ever happened. Th- these are miracles. It, it, what, what God has done is, you know, he created the world. So, so what we call nature actually is a miracle itself. So what we call the laws of nature is actually a miracle from God. God set it up. But, it's, but also God can then kind of puncture the membrane of that however he wants to and reach in and do things as he pleases. And so that's, this is Moses' point. Guys, God has done something here that he never has really done in the same kind of way. Isn't it amazing? Stand in awe of what God has done for you. Which then leads to what I think is the second sort of major theme in this passage, that in light of that, God is trying to show you something. The reason God did all these miraculous deeds is because he's trying to teach you something about himself. And that something is stated extremely clearly in verse 35. You were shown these things so that what? You might know, know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. We want you to just know this, Israel, that He's God. So He's God, and besides Him, there's zero other gods. There's just one. There's only one God. And it's not just sort of, and this is my philosophy Moses is saying, or this is what I kind of think. It's like, look, he showed it to you. What other God has done anything like this in all of history? It's an amazing thing that the Lord did for Israel to show his uniqueness. This idea that God is the only God would have been bizarro in Israel's day because all the other nations worshipped a pantheon of deities. And you could worship whatever gods you wanted to, because there were lots of gods. You know, think where did Israel come from? They came from Egypt. Think about all the gods the Egyptians worshipped. Where did Israel travel to? To the land of Cana. You know, they there were all kinds of gods in Cana, Baal and Ashtoreth and Moat, and all kinds of different Canaanite deities. There were deities in Greece, there were deities, there's animism and spiritism. The whole world was filled with it at that day at that time. And then right in the center is Israel saying, There's one God and only one God, and no other gods are gods. It just would have been bizarre. You know, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, because there's only one. They're monotheistic. And just as it was weird in Israel's day, I think it's weird today to go around saying, you know, there really is just one God. People do not sit well with that. It's for different reasons. You know, back then the reason people didn't sit well with it was because they were uh, polytheists. Today, the reason people don't sit well with it is because we're... Uh, you know, postmodernists, and and it's like, no, no, no. Everyone has the right to their own beliefs. Everyone has the right to their own philosophies. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has a right to whatever they want to believe. But that's not the question. What I'm asking is, is there one God or not? You know, oh, you can't say that. That that's intolerant. That's closed-minded. That's narrow. That's bigoted. You know, it makes people feel bad. Look, who cares how people feel right now? <laughs> is it true or isn't it true that there is one God? I mean, if it's true, that's something of such importance that we can just kind of deal with the the bad feelings for a second, put those aside, and get over our feelings. You know, is there a God or isn't there? And if there is one God, if there's one God who's not just another philosophy, another theory, another idea, but a God who has acted in history to save, then that is the true God. And He has a leg up on every other claim by demonstrating his power in the world. So he's, he's God. There's none beside him. That's what he, he wanted to show through all these miracles, which then leads to the third and final observation from this text. So, so the first one was something unique and exclusive has happened, which shows that God is the unique and exclusive God, which then I think the third part is, therefore calls for an exclusive response from us to God that we should have an exclusive devotion to him if he's the the one and true God. So you look at verses 39 and 40. Here's the response. Here's the so what. Here's what Israel's supposed to do with this great revelation. And notice there's two kind of general commands there. The first is verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God above and on earth below there is no other. So the first thing I have to do is Accept it. <laughs> I have to agree. There is no other God. There's just this God, who created the world and who saved people of Israel for Himself. I need to acknowledge. It. I need to affirm that as truth. That there's a mental component there, but it's not just mental, right? Because what does He say in verse 39? Acknowledge and take to heart that the Lord is God. So, so it's it's something deeper than just affirming uh, a. The point of doctrine—it's—it's it's letting it come into your soul. I, I love the Hebrew there. The Hebrew is, cause to return to your heart. It's, it's kind of a literal Hebrew translation. It was, make it come into your heart, that that the Lord is God, and besides Him there is no other. You know, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Jeremy, don't have any other gods vying or competing with this true God. I need to set God apart in my heart completely. And then that leads to the second sort of so what application, which is verse 40. Keep his decrees and commands. In other words, do what he says. So so do you kind of can you follow the logic of this whole section? There's a sort of a rhythm and a flow to it. It starts with God has done something unique to prove that number two, he really is the only true God. Therefore, acknowledge it and do what he says. So there's a nice kind of flow to what Moses is saying here we need to keep his commands. I wonder sometimes if the reason why we're uncomfortable with the idea that there's one true God is because if there is it means we have to keep his commands. That that one of the reasons we like being squishy on matters of spirituality, one of the reasons we're sort of drawn toward postmodern thought not only is it the world in which we live, but maybe there's something in us that wants it to be true, that there's lots of truths and lots of paths and lots of spiritualities and, and lots of ways. That maybe the reason that's so appealing is because that's really not demanding on me, that there's part of me that's just kind of inclined to believe that, because then, well, you know, it's that, fine if you're going to do that thing, but it's not my thing. My thing's this. You know, my, my religion is this, or my, my belief is that. And I can pick something that's maybe not so demanding, But if God is the only God, then I just have to deal with Him and I have to face His Word. And I really only have one choice, to follow Him or not. So Moses says, verse 32, back at the top there, Ask now about the former days long before your time. From the day God created the man on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? And you know, as Israel stood there with Moses, they would have had to have said, Nope, nothing like this has ever happened before. But you know, brothers and sisters, if Moses came here to our worship service today, and we got him up here on the platform and gave him a microphone, and we're like, and Moses were to ask us this question South Shore Baptists has anything so great as this ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? We would actually have to say, well, as a matter of fact, Moses, something even greater has happened since your day. And we'd have to explain that. I mean, he knows it already. But he just, you know, imagine that he didn't and he was here. Yeah, it was an amazing deliverance in your day, Moses. God rescued Israel from Egypt. He rescued a people. But an even more profound, deep deliverance and rescue has taken place, Moses, of which the first one was merely a prefigurement of the second. Yes, Moses, miracles were done in your day, but something even greater has taken place as a miracle. The dead have been raised, Moses. Yes, in your day, you know, um, a covenant was made and a people were formed and they became a nation. But Moses, there's a new covenant that's been made. There's a new people that includes the people of your people who believe and then all the nations who believe. It's a new Israel that goes beyond the bounds of any geopolitical state. It's God's people who come to faith in Christ. There's a new people that have been formed. And you know, Moses, you saw God in your day in an amazing way on the mountain. But God, He showed up again. But He didn't show up in fire. He showed up as a man. It's amazing. Yes, Moses, something greater has happened. And we call it Christmas. The entrance of God into the world as a human. We call it Good Friday. That this God took our sins upon Himself. We call it Easter. He rose again. And we call it the second coming. He's coming back. Something amazing has happened, Moses. God has come to save his people in an even greater way. Look with me very briefly. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It's on page 1193. Hebrews, chapter 12, page 1193. If you have a few Bible. The writer of Hebrews makes the same point. That there was a first appearance of God, a first sort of act of deliverance, and then it foreshadowed a second one. And he, he compares the two to show how great the salvation is that we have. So the first one is in verse Hebrews chapter twelve, verses eighteen to twenty one. He says to the Christians in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse eighteen You have not come. So this is what's not happened to you, church you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. In other words, you haven't come to a physical mountain like Mount Sinai and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight of it was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So it wasn't like that back in Mount Sinai. You know. And, and what's the overall vibe you get from verses 18 to 21? It's kind of terror, dread, fear, fire. Even Moses was afraid. You know, again, when, when sinful human beings come into the presence of a holy God, the typical response we see in the Bible is, is terror because we suddenly realize that we're under the judgment of God. I, I don't think about that most of my time. But, but when people in the Bible tend to meet God, they tend to just say, I, I don't, you know, run away. It's like Israel was saying to Moses, you talk to him. You talk to him, Moses. We don't want to, don't, get us out of here. Go up and tell us what he says, but no one want to hear from him anymore. Get us away from God. We, we're going to die. In fact, we don't even know why we're alive right now. It's amazing. We lived. So let's just, you know, <laughs> stop right here. Moses, you go talk. God is too holy. But even Moses was afraid. Isaiah, when he saw God. In his vision, Isaiah said, you know, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You know, I'm, I'm unclean. And so that's what it was like back then. But the writer of Hebrews says, that's not been your experience, Christians. Instead, something new has happened. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. We've come to a mountain, but it's not an earthly mountain. We've come to the true home of God in heaven, so to speak. Uh, So so even though we're not in heaven yet, even as Christians, somehow, in some sense, we're already belonging to a heavenly citizenship. Do you see that? In some sense, we've already come to God in heaven, even though we're still waiting to actually get there. He says, you've come to... Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So this isn't a, a terrifying kind of thing. It's, here's all these angels. It's a big angel party. They're celebrating. There's a huge worship service going on. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. So again, we've come to the church of God's people whose names are written there. We belong in heaven. That's where our home and our identity is, is in the new new creation. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to spirits of righteous men made perfect look at the difference in tone one is terror dread fear the other is celebration one is run away the other is belonging i belong there i'm going there i'm already there in some sense i so belong there that even though i'm not there i'm there that's how much i belong there instead of get me away from him because he's terrifying something's happened some great act of god has happened that makes our relationship to god so different than what Israel experienced at the foot of Mount Sinai. What is the difference? It's right there in verse 24. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Moses. Has anything like this ever happened? That God became a man and that as a man He took the punishment that I deserve upon himself and he died and rose again so that I can be saved. But this is this is unprecedented. Again, check your world history. Check your world religions. Where has this ever happened? That God would die for his enemies. It's remarkable. It's breathtaking Who God has done for us. This is what I need. You know, I I, I don't need uh I don't need a bunch of wise sayings, I don't need chicken soup for my soul. I don't need I don't need a different spirituality, I don't need a different yoga position, I don't need a diet, I need a savior. I need a savior. And this is who the Lord is, He's the Savior. And so we need to respond, just like Moses called Israel to respond. So we have a response here just quickly, verse twenty five. Here's response number one. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. God is speaking. Don't tune him out. God is offering you salvation. Don't tune him out. God is is calling you to Jesus. Don't refuse him. Don't shut him out. God is is there. The gospel is right here before you. Come to Christ and be saved. You know, don't don't just push that out. But but don't refuse him. Take it and receive it. And and even for those of us who have received the gospel, look at verse 28. Therefore, since receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So we need to be thankful. Man, every day I get out of bed, I should be filled with thankfulness for what Christ has done for me. I need to put a huge sign on my dresser. Like, Jeremy, you know, you're saved. Be thankful. (laughs) Like, every day I need that message. I need to wake up and be like, I have been plucked from hell. I have been cleansed. I have been adopted into God's family. Heaven, I have the ticket to heaven stamped onto my hand. I, I couldn't not be a Christian now because God's the one who saved me. I can't lose that salvation. I'm God's. you know. So whatever's going to happen today, no matter how bad it is, is it really that bad? You know, I, I need to get my perspective right. And so as Christians, no matter how dark our lives become, we always have an infinite reason to give thanks because we have eternal life. So I need to be joyful. I need to be thankful, even in the hard times. And then the other thing I need to do is I need to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. You know, when I think of what Christ has done for me, it should create awe and reverence. Our worship should be marked with some reverence. You know, we should be in awe of who God is. I, uh, you know, part of the conventional wisdom of a lot of evangelical worship today, you know, if if you look at sort of kind of worship philosophy, it's that worship should be very upbeat. Everything needs to be upbeat. You know, in fact, it should be entertaining. It should be like, you know, get everyone happy and clapping. And then the pastor should get up there and he should be funny and cool and, you know, get everyone happy. And then everyone goes out of church happy. And then it's like, oh, maybe, maybe your church will grow because people want to be happy. And so there's this kind of philosophy that's tucked into a lot of worship, thinking about worship today. And should we be happy in worship? I mean, of course. We're celebrating Christ. But it shouldn't be the kind of happiness that's like the fizz on the top of a Dr. Pepper. It shouldn't be that just kind of emotionally gemmed- up entertainment sort of happiness that I feel when I watch a funny television show or something. It should be the joy that comes out of my salvation you know, it should be that kind of thankful happiness. And then it should also be mingled with what? Reverence and awe. So we need to revere God and stand in awe of Him as well, even as we rejoice and celebrate. They both need to be there. And it's not just on Sunday morning, right? Because this isn't the only time we worship. And this is when we worship together. But our whole lives should be worshiped as we leave this place and go out into the world. And so I need to have a life that is marked by the reverence and awe of God in everything that I do. Uh, You know, when I think of the Bible of people whose lives were marked by reverence and awe, I think of Joseph in Egypt. remember when Joseph was in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife was hitting on him, trying to get him to commit adultery with her. Finally, one day, there was no one in the house, and she's like, this is it, let's go, there's no one here, no one will know. And he said, I can't. You know, I can't do such an evil thing. How could I sin against my God? My God sees me. I stand in awe and reverence of God. I need to live a holy life Even if no one else knows, my God knows. That's what it means to live in awe of God. It should lead us to holiness. Or I think of Job. Remember all the the garbage Job went through? All the suffering. Lost his family, unbelievable, lost his health, lost his possessions. Even his wife kind of turns against him. His wife's like, Why aren't you what's wrong with you? You know, why don't you just curse God and die? Why are you acting like such a you know holy roller? let go. Just curse God and die. It would be better for all of us, really, if you would. And uh, it's a sort of interesting little marriage moment there. And and Job says, am I going to accept good from God and not bad? I can't curse God. And so even in the midst of his deepest, darkest suffering, he said, I'm going to revere God even as I suffer. And so whatever we're in, whatever's going on in our lives, temptations, struggles, victories, We need to live in the reverence and awe of God as Christians. It should mark us. Because the God we worship as New Testament Christians is the same God as in the Old Testament. He hasn't changed. And so even though we're saved and we're in Christ, He's still holy. And it is still true, as it says there in verse 29, that our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray.